Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, this morning I want to try and finish our series in Ephesians this morning by trying to pull it all together into one sentence for you to remember. One takeaway. So you tell somebody at work tomorrow uh, who doesn't want to know, but you tell them anyway that we recently studied Ephesians in church. That's what the sermons were on. And the friend says to you, well, what did you learn from Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Here's the answer. We learned that we need to fight. We need to fight to keep together what God has brought together in Jesus. That's where we are this morning. That's the end of this wonderful letter. We need to fight. We need to go to war to keep united what God has already united in Jesus, His Son. See, it's very easy, isn't it, to to just leave church, move through the week, to move through the week in the same way that we move through a sermon, sitting with our arms folded, or maybe we've got a pen in our hand, we're taking notes. However we're listening, we're taking it all in, the information is, is coming in, it's moving from the head to the heart, and we respond in praise, it's great. And yet, don't we leave it behind as we move into the week? But what is the image here in these verses of where we live? As I read verses 10 down to verse 20, what is the image? It's Ukraine, isn't it? We're in the middle of a war. When Zlodomir Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, appears on your TV or he appears on our TV over here, we all think, don't we, what a brave man. What a good leader. But when he appears on your TV in Ukraine, you're getting your marching orders from him. He he is commanding his troops into war, isn't he? Saying, you need to move here and you need to go here and here's how we will fight. And this morning, friends, from this passage, we are commanded to fight. Do you know why? Because what God has brought together in Jesus, we need to fight to keep together. I was remembering this week that the very last time I ever preached on this passage was years ago at Arul and Sarah Sentel's wedding. Uh, Arul and Sarah are away from us just for a couple of years down in Fife. And Arul and Sarah years ago said, uh, we'd love you to preach at our wedding. Would you do that? And I said, sure. What, what passage? And they said, preach to us on Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Weddings are tremendous occasions, aren't they? A marriage brings joy, not just to the couple, but to families, to to everybody who knows and loves them. Friends are gathered from all over the world. And into that world of happiness, Arul and Sarah chose words about a battle. And many people made jokes uh, at the time. That's what the newlyweds are in for now, the battle of the sexes. They're in for the fight of their lives. That, that, that passage, certainly it was the first time I'd ever heard it at a wedding, ever preached on it at a wedding, and it is in fact, friends, one of the most perfect 
choices a couple could make for a wedding reading. And here's why. Because God delights in uniting people, in joining things together. And His enemy, the devil, delights in separating people, in dividing people, in in pulling people apart in marriages, in churches, in, in families, in workplaces. We end up fighting with each other without realizing that instead we are meant to be fighting someone else. Someone is fighting with us. When God made the world, you see, when He made the world, heaven came down to earth in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was literally, almost literally heaven on earth. It is where God had His dwelling. He he walked with His children in perfection. Heaven and earth were joined. When He made Adam and Eve, He joined them together. When He gave His people His law and traveled with His ancient people through the wilderness, He joined them on their journey. God was with them in fire and clouds. When God entered our world in Jesus, when Jesus joined Himself to human nature, He was with us, joined to us. And when that good news about the Lord Jesus in His life and death and resurrection, when that gospel message took hold in the ancient world, it said this, Jew and Gentile, two races, two peoples that were at war, you are now joined together in Jesus. Two have become one. If you want a single word summary, your your friend over coffee, they're intrigued at the answer you've given them. They ask, In fact, a little bit later, they say, could you give me not just one sentence, but one word summary of Ephesians? The word you would give them is together. Together. God loves putting things together. He loves putting people together. And He loves what Arul and Sarah did that day. Those of you who know Arul and Sarah, not just two different people, but two different races. Two different groups, two different families from different ends of the earth joined together. God, God loves it. And here's the thing. The devil hates it. The devil hates it. In the garden, heaven and earth are joined. And the devil, what does he do? He speaks to separate Adam and Eve from each other. And as they are separated from each other, there now is Cain and Abel playing in the dirt together as brothers and the devil separates Cain and Abel and all through world history his sword cleaves and cleaves and cleaves as people divide and divide. God's mission in the world is to put back what people have divided. So it's why these words in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 it's why they come so soon after the words about husbands and wives. Because there is a war on. Husbands and wives, you know, you know you are at war. It's not a war over where you go on holiday or which side of the bed you sleep on or what you do with your money. Those are just the kind of skirmishes that, that the devil wants to take and use and to sow division into and disharmony and to end up killing our love for one another. It's why these words in the armor of God come so soon after Children and parents, chapter 6, verse 1. Wouldn't you agree with me? One of the deepest, the most painful of wounds, I think it's the most painful type I have ever seen, is 
when parents and children are no longer speaking to each other? Is it possible that flesh and blood relations could end up at war like that? How is that even possible? Well, Paul says it's because the devil is, well, look at it with me. Look, make no mistake, three things about the devil. He is cunning. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, what's the word? The schemes of the devil. The, 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 the stratagems of the devil. Older translations say the wiles of the devil. One commentator says that word means tactical shrewdness and ingenious deception. I wonder if you felt just a little bit superior this week as we've watched Wagatha Christie play out in court. Rebecca Vardy, Colleen Rooney. And we think, really? How on earth do you end up like this? But it happens, and it happens to Christian people, to Christian marriages, to Christian homes, to Christian churches. People who end up in court like that did not start ending up there. They started years back, years further down the line, as the schemes of the devil begin to take hold, and a church life or a a Christian home, a Christian marriage begins to come apart at the seams. Oh, the devil is cunning. Number two, the devil is powerful. Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. The devil is cunning. He's powerful. Number three, he is wicked. Look, look who he is a power over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. Somebody said, the devil recognizes no Genevan convention to restrict or to partially civilize the weapons of war. Now he fights dirty. There are no rules in what he will do. The the devil is able to take Adam and Eve in a perfect world, God's children, and he's able to slide his way between them, separating Adam and Eve from each other so that Eve ends up on the serpent's side, on his team. Isn't it amazing when God comes to the garden and he speaks to Adam? He speaks to Adam first and says, what did you do? And what does Adam say? The woman you gave me made me do it. It's an amazing line, isn't it? It, It's your fault, God, for giving her to me, and it's her fault for making me do it. In a perfect world. Oh, the cunning and the power and the wickedness and that the world is pulled apart. It's why, friends, that we need to know that what we've just read, what we're about to look at here, 10 10 to 20, spiritual warfare is ordinary. You've probably been at war today already. Some of you maybe literally feel it in your your home. Spiritual warfare is ordinary. You will fight the devil today before you go to bed or uh, before the end of the day. It's, It's what you do with your tiredness towards your spouse or your children. You will have been engaged in spiritual warfare tomorrow at work before you get to lunchtime, almost certainly. Look at verse 5 again of chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Some of you know that that will be a fight tomorrow. What a fight to obey, to to be humble, to, to serve Christ gladly and willingly. 
Masters, verse 9, there is the fight for you, employer. Stop your threatening. Brothers and sisters, I want us to leave here today, this morning, with this ringing in our ears. Get ready for war. Get ready for war. Get ready to fight. I want, I want, I want us to leave with the, the scale of God's plan for the world, everything brought together in Jesus. I want us to leave with that scale stapled to us, stapled to who you are in Jesus. And here in this passage, in this This beautiful picture, these amazing verses, going to war is all about having the right equipment, isn't it? It's a terrible thing. It happened, didn't it, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. It's kind of dropped off the news the last couple of years. But one of the greatest shames on our nation, I think, was soldiers returning, who we sent to war, returning from battle, saying that they did not have the right equipment. Sent to face an enemy they were not equipped to meet. They did not have the right weapons. It's what's been happening all over the world for Ukraine, hasn't it? Getting the right tools into the right hands. And here Paul gives you and I and every believer a visual aid, a a picture of the kind of things that you need to put on if you're going to go to war successfully. Things that we need to wear so that we can stay together united forever. And friends, as you look at it, just put your eyes on it. Where, does it. where does it begin? Verse 13 onwards. What Paul wants us to focus on here, what he wants us to really see is not so much the pieces of armor, the belt, the breastplate, the boots, the shield, and so on, not so much them as the things that they represent. It's the belt of truth breastplate of righteousness, the the boots that are like the gospel of peace. Get dressed in those things, truth, righteousness, peace. Week by week, friends, we come to church looking magnificent. You look great today. Nobody said it to you. I can say it to you. Say it to you now. But what we wear for church is one thing, isn't it? But Paul says it's, it's what we wear all week that matters. And these pieces of armor, the most astonishing thing, friends, is that these pieces of armor actually describe God himself. Down through the years, some of you will know this, commentators have kind of, kind of gone to town on the Roman soldier. Uh, if you look at verse 20, Paul says, I am an ambassador in chains. So most commentators let their imaginations run riot. They say, Paul would have been chained to a Roman soldier. Paul has the Roman soldier in his mind. He's looking at his magnificent helmet. He's looking at his breastplate. He's looking at his shoes. And he's using that as a picture of what the believer needs to do. But I don't think that is right. It is, it is the armor of God that Paul is imagining. So I want you just to turn back to the, the prophet Isaiah. Put your finger in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 59. Page 619 in the church Bible. Page 619. Isaiah chapter 59 and find verse 14. Here is God looking at his broken world. People pulled apart, separated from one another, evil and injustice running amok. What does he do? Verse 14, justice is turned back. 
Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. Truth is lacking. What's the first thing we're meant to put on in the armor of God? Truth. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And because he saw that, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. And so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A Redeemer will come to Zion. Brothers and sisters, these words in Ephesians chapter 6 are a stunning picture of God Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, come to earth. Into a world of brokenness. What did God do? Well, we think He sent a prophet, a messenger. Yes, all of that is true. He sent His Son. Yes, that is true. He sent a king, a warrior, somebody to put back together what we have broken. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true and perfect man. He is the ultimate warrior against the devil. It is God himself who defeats the devil, who conquers evil. So for us today, this language of putting on all of these things, it is Ephesians' way of saying to you and me this morning, Get out of bed tomorrow morning and get dressed with Jesus. Put on Christ. Remember we saw that when we were were working our way through it. Galatians, Paul says, when you were baptized, you put on Jesus. If you look back just at chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to say to us this morning, friends, if you want to fight, you need to wear Jesus. Every day you need to take what is His, what He is like, and and put it on. So so look how this works. We're not not going to go through every single piece of armor. I want to give you a, a flavor for it, a feel for it if you're in house groups this week. You will have the chance to work through some of the ones that we don't get to. But I want you just to see how this works. Once you see it, you can do it. Go back through Ephesians and find each of these words in the letter and see what Paul wants us to do. Verse 14, stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Just go back again to chapter 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then look what Paul says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. I simply want to say this morning exactly what I said when we looked at chapter 4. I want to say, brothers and sisters... Every single day of your lives, from now on, get dressed with truth. Put it on. 
get out of bed in the morning and buckle truth to you, God's truth. In other words, cling to truth, love truth, speak truth, and only ever truth and nothing but the truth. Never, ever lie to each other. How did, how did the devil begin to fracture the world? How did he begin to pull apart what God had joined? He lied. He, he deceived. He, he misled. Remember Proverbs chapter 24, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow, Proverbs 25. Amazing, isn't it? Lies are a type of weapon. Truth is a type of weapon. We've all done this, haven't we? Dishonesty, white lies, shading the truth. Maybe you've had it done to you. Maybe you've had it done to you in a church of all places. Reputations ruined, character tainted by falsehood. Oh, friends, let it not be so. Not, not here, not among us. Do, do not pull apart what God is doing in the universe. God is speaking truth as men and women lay down their own arms and join together. Falsehood pulls all of that apart. All that we have done together this morning in picking up our confession of sin that we say together, it is all about truth, isn't it? We, we've confessed our sins to God and in the presence of each other. What a beautiful thing to come week by week and to come out into the light. And do not have a secret world that somebody else knows nothing about, a world that you're nurturing and cherishing about yourself, which is not truthful about who you really are in Jesus. Get dressed with truth. Same verse, get dressed with righteousness. N not your own righteousness. This is God's righteousness, isn't it? Arul and Sarah on their wedding day, they would say to us right now, wouldn't they, that they quickly discovered, if they hadn't already discovered, just how unrighteous each of them are. You discover that in marriage. You discover what it is like to be joined to another sinner for life. You quickly discover it in the workplace, don't you? How unrighteous you are. And you certainly discover how unrighteous everybody else is around you. Well, what about chapter 6, verse 1 to 4? Children and parents. Oh, we quickly discover, don't we, at the breakfast table or the evening meal table or late at night when everybody's tired. Oh, we are so unrighteous. You know what you need to do at that moment, friends? When, when, when you're in the thick of the battle at war and you discover that you are not wearing righteousness, what, what do we need to do? Because we, we quickly discover that, don't we, in a church? Friends, if you're new to us and you're loving life among us, it's wonderful. Be here among us long enough and someone will upset you or offend you or overlook you or just plain irritate you. And you will discover how unrighteous you are. Your own heart is. What do we do? What will the devil do at that moment? Here's what the devil will do. Call yourself a Christian? Huh. I see you in church week by week, but they don't see what I can see. They don't know what I know. 
brothers and sisters, what we do in that moment is this, in all those moments, pick up and put on Christ's righteousness. You dress yourself in Him, in who He is, not in who you are. John Newton, the great hymn writer, he has a hymn, Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat. It has this line in it. It says this, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Isn't that amazing? I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, Lord Jesus, you have died. You have paid for this sin. This thing that is wrong, you have done it. You have taken care of it. You have covered it. Get dressed every day. What's the next one? Verse 15, with peace. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, here in Ephesians, Paul uses this phrase, the gospel of peace, to describe what happens when Jew and Gentile are brought together. When Jew and Gentile decide to lay down their arms and put enmity and hostility behind them and to be united to one another, that's what this phrase, the gospel of peace, is all about. You know, friends, that no matter what happens to you, with God's gospel alive in your heart, you will be able to soften your heart towards someone else. It will make you want to pursue peace with somebody else. Maybe sometimes it will be hard to forgive. Dress yourself in the gospel all over again. Remember what Christ has done for you. Seek peace with each other. I think, I think this idea here of shoes on the feet, it's, it's to do with readiness, isn't it? It's, it's to do with movement. You get that in the idea of, of the verse. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The movement is towards peace with someone else. It's not the walk on the beach. It's not the peace of uh, a sunset. No, look back at chapter 2, verse 15. Just look back to chapter 2, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the kind of peace when enemies lay down arms, when enemies become friends. I read this week Roy Keane, the Irish footballer, the Man United footballer, a Catholic fan, a Celtic fan, a Catholic by background. Andy Gorham, the Rangers goalkeeper, I'd forgotten that years ago Andy Gorham had a spell at Manchester United. Roy Keane, Celtic fan, Catholic, Andy Gorham, Protestant Rangers. Andy Gorham, uh, Roy Keane said, when Andy Gorham came to the same club as me, I managed to not say a single word to him the whole time he was there. Of course, Roy Keane being Roy Keane, he said it with pride, didn't he? I kept up the enmity. I kept up the hostility. We would never do that, would we? Ephesians says, friends, are are there people that we are moving away from, not towards? Is our readiness in the wrong direction? Or are we the kind of church member who is almost impossible to upset, very easy to please, always seeking and making peace. What about this one, verse 16? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
take up the shield of faith. I, I read this week in Sinclair Ferguson. Listen to this. I thought this was just beautiful. What does it mean to take up the shield of faith? Listen to these words. Here, Paul puts his finger on a sinister and often profoundly distressing experience. An experience that is well catalogued in the history of the church. A sudden unexpected attack on the mind or the thoughts or the affections of the believer. Weakening him, creating shame, spiritual paralysis and terror. Because it's because of the rest of that verse, isn't it? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts which are an unexpected attack on the mind, on thoughts, on affections. Some of the spiritual masters of the past, like John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon, have described living with an onslaught of unworthy, even blasphemous thoughts coming to them unbidden. For others of us, it is the sudden memory of a past sin that seems to be like a match thrown on dry tinder. We find ourselves overwhelmed with panic and guilt. We lose our footing. We doubt our salvation. And even worse, doubts obscure the love of the Father towards us. What is the believer to do? Raise the shield of faith. Refuse the evil lies that have burst into flames in the mind. Resolutely trust in Christ. Insist on the gospel. Nothing in us saves us. Only what Christ has done outside of us saves us. Trust in Him. Christ alone is our salvation. Oh, friends, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's all you need to take away this morning. To, to hide yourself behind the gospel again. To hide yourself behind all that Christ has done for you. Maybe those words are exactly where you are with unbidden thoughts rising. Take up the shield of faith and love God's Word. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Friends, dress yourselves every single day in the Bible. Drench yourself in God's Word. The image matters, doesn't it? It is the sword of the Spirit. Here's the way to ask the question. Can you cut yourself on your Bible? Or does your Bible never wound? You know, I I meet plenty of ineffectual Christians and it's, it's because they have an ineffectual Bible. Their Bible is not a sword, it's a Nerf bullet, it's a Nerf sword. It it bends in the wind, it it blows with whatever way the wind is blowing. They, They have never felt the Bible penetrate. Never felt the Bible divide them and pull them apart, opening up a space inside them for God to come in by His Spirit and change them. No, I've got my Bible, yes, but I only agree with parts of it. It's just me and my thoughts and the Bible. I'll accept the Bible so long as it doesn't hurt me in any way. No, the Bible is a sword. It penetrates, it divides, it exposes, it it cuts, it wounds, it heals, it gives life. Lastly, verse 18, prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The speech of the soldier is upwards to God, isn't it? And then it is outwards about one another. That's who Paul is praying about. I'm 
praying, but making supplication, verse 18, for all the saints. I'm a soldier, so I'm going to speak to God, and I'm going to speak to God about you. Don't don't you love verse 19? Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me, says Paul. This picture of a mighty soldier. Paul's saying, "I, I need help to get dressed with all these things. And to pray for you, I need you to pray for me. Brothers and sisters, they say, don't they, that that the alcoholic who has gone 20 years without a drink only does it because each and every day, they start each day saying, this day today I will not drink. Each day begins with a mental vow, a promise, a mental action, a, a mental clothing themselves in who they need to be. I want to ask you this morning, do you just coast through the week? Do you just happen to get here week by week? Or are you a soldier every morning praying for yourself and for others? Lord, Lord, dress me in truth. Clothe me in peace. You, you know where I want to be at war with him or her. Clothe me in peace. There's a beautiful picture here at the end, isn't it? That what makes the church stay together is the church praying together. So God make us, may may God make us fight for him and speak to him, speak to him about one another. May he help us. Amen.